Senators tear strips of privileged bankers and central bank dictatorship plot stumbles. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 22nd of February 2024. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome Robbie. Thanks Lisa. And on today's show we're going to be talking about the latest hearing of the Senate inquiry into regional bank closures which you've just been at and uh, that got pretty feisty and fiery. And then in a not unrelated subject, we'll discuss the latest hurdles that uh, the government is facing in trying to take away its own power over the uh, Reserve Bank and uh, monetary policy in general. So it's getting interesting on that front also. So stay tuned for the whole show. Now, don't forget to hit the like button, share this show as widely as you can, comment below Uh, subscribe and ring the notification bells. There's uh, always additional updates that we're putting out on various things as they happen, so you'll be notified straight away. And comment. Make sure you comment. That's a very important part of the process. I try and participate in the comments um, whenever I can. Mm. Uh, And um, there's a donate button there. If We don't... We're not an information service. We're activists. Mm. What we report on is what we're doing to change the system. And um, just in the last 48 hours, driven about 13 hours to this hearing in South Australia and back. Um, and we need support to be able to do that sort of thing. And next month, Elisa, I'm taking off to Tom Price yeah. in northern <laughs> Western Australia, so that, which will be the, the most extreme destination of the, of the hearing, mm, the Senate yes. inquiry. So a bit of fun there. And it's uh, making a huge impact. So... Uh, Now, just before we get into the first topic, though, a reminder that coming up on the 9th of March is the event for um, the campaign to get Assange home. And, of course, his trial is um, underway now and we're awaiting... Well, it's just concluded in the last few hours, actually. They had two days of hearings. So this is his final extradition hearing in the British courts where the result of this hearing will be whether he gets extradited Mm. or not Uh, so and of course if he does get extradited then that's a terrible terrible outcome there are people in America who want to kill him Mm. Stella Assange um, you can see a video where Stella Assange is talking about the CIA plot to kill Julian Assange he is absolutely hated by the US foreign policy establishment and military industrial Mm. complex so if they get him over there, that is what they will do, and they'll call it. You know, he'll be Jeffrey Epstein or whoever you want to, whatever you know, um, however you want to refer to it as. Um, so that's going to be alarming. Now, the question for the British courts, and don't kid yourself. I mean, these British courts, uh, you're supposed to believe that some person in a wig is going to make a purely impartial decision. I can tell you something now. When it comes to this level of um, case. It's never an impartial decision. There are decisions being taken behind closed doors right now as to what the outcome of that mm-hmm. trial will be and the judges are in on that um, and come and sue me if you want to if you don't, if you think I'm, this is contempt of court. It is contempt of British court. I'll contempt them. I'll be showing my contempt every day of the week. Um, 
the, the particular judge, he's had too many judges that should have recused themselves because they're conflict of interest over him, right? Mm. Um, but the question for the British establishment is what are they going to do about the um, Australian Parliament's vote last week, yeah. which was taken, um, I think, actually after we recorded our show last week. So last Thursday, the Australian Parliament, the House of Representatives, took a vote by a massive margin, mm. voted... To, for uh, Andrew Wilkie's uh, motion to bring Assange home. Mm. And that's a message to the Americans and to the British. And how are our great allies going to treat us? Yeah. Because I tell you something now, if you think Americans and British are our great allies and they ignore this vote in the parliament, get your head out of your butt. Mm. They are not our allies, they are our enemies. They are the ones who have dragged us into every damn war that they've started and we've gone along willingly by the nose, and we better stop doing that. And mm. it's going to start with Australians waking up and stop being sucked into the idea they're our allies. But this will be a test how they're going to treat us with how they're going to treat this vote from the Australian Parliament. Yeah, and do pick up the phone, ring your MP, send an email to your MP. How are they going to follow up on this historic vote? Mm. What is Albanese preparing to do? He needs to be on the blower to Biden and saying, "Look, end this now." So, Elisa, well, we'll have the we'll have the link below. Uh, to the event on the th on the 9th of March, night falls yes. in the evening lands. It's here in Melbourne. Um, anyone who's Melbourne-based or is going to be in Melbourne, if you can get along, it's also online, mm -hmm. right? But please register. Um, pay, the, pay the fee. It's worth it. It goes to, you know, this cause, which is a very, very important one, um, and our party is helping to sponsor this, this particular event. Uh, so we'll be there on the day. If you want to meet us, come, you know, sign up, register and, and uh, go to this Night Falls in the Evening Land mm. event. Yes. Okay, now on to um, the hot news from yesterday's events. Uh, topic one, senators tear strips off privileged bankers. And were they privileged from the reports <laughs> that you've just been giving to the office here this morning, Robbie? Um, so this was the latest in the ongoing, latest hearing in the ongoing inquiry of the bank closures. The hearing, actually. Okay, wow. Um, yep. So you've been around a bit. <laughs> Since Well, it was February last year that the inquiry was established. Mm. So that's a year ago. The first hearing was in at the end of March last year. So since that first hearing, there's now been 10 hearings, mostly around Australia, two of them in Canberra. And uh, yeah, I've attended every one, and um, mostly with uh, Glenn Isherwood from the office here. But then yesterday I went over there uh, with Doug Mitchell from the office. And of course, Doug's our, Doug's the hero of, we'll talk about bail-in later, mm. Doug's the, the hero of bail-in. He's the one who in 2017 just happened to notice on a Friday afternoon this sneaky bill was posted by the Treasury Department that Doug said, hang on, this looks sus, and sent it to yeah. me, is this bail-in? And that's where the whole bail-in thing came from. So Doug's pretty sharp. And so we went over there. And um, I tell you what, every even though there's a certain sameness to all these hearings when you go to these country towns, and there's a certain um, similarity in the testimony because the, the particular problems that the banks cause by closing branches are universal. And it starts off with the availability of cash, but there's other problems. It's driving, having to drive long distances. It's a sheer inconvenience of... Of, um, for, for businesses, etc., you know, losing their banking services, all that sort of stuff. Even though that's the case, every town brings something unique. The, the people who testify, I'm, I've, never, I've never seen a witness I haven't been impressed with because mm. they're just speaking the truth. 
right? They're, they're representing their town, they're representing themselves, they're speaking the truth about what it's like. And I think, uh, Elisa, it's having a big impact on the senators who participate in this inquiry. Mm. Yeah, so this particular hearing was at Kingston Southeast in South Australia. Apparently there's two Kingstons in South Australia. Of course, South Aussies would know that, but um, if you're not a South Aussie, you wouldn't. And there's even a Kingston in Victoria, and there was a funny story that emerged today where, was it the West NAB? Um, So what happened was last year when when Westpac wrote to the Kingston Council to say, we're closing your bank (laughs) SA, which is a subsidiary of Westpac, they addressed the letter to Mr. Bean. And that, that led to some funny discussion in the inquiry because, as the locals said, well, there's no one running around Kingston Southeast who looks like Rowan Atkinson, right? And it turns out that because there is two Kingstons in South Australia and one in Victoria, the CEO of the Kingston Victoria Council, his name is Mr. Bean. His surname is Bean, right? And the head office of Westpac in Sydney that's yeah. sending out this letter... They're completely incompetent, right? Don't double-check, because they don't care. This is... If they were writing to... Um, if they were writing their resumes, these, these yeah. executives, oh, yeah. for their next job, <laughs> they will dot every I and cross every T, right? But they're just, they're just you know... Shutting abandoning, down a bank a, Abandoning a country town. Mm. They don't care, right? So, anyway, that was part of the... That, that was a humorous part of yesterday's hearing. Yeah, but... Um, on the serious side, so there were witnesses from uh, that came from Cooper Pedy, which is um, a really one of the most important and emblematic cases of a town losing their bank. Um, from Narracourt, a whole delegation that was really impressive, as you were saying. Um, you had uh, the Shire of Coorong that has no bank at all, for instance. This is this is the Shire, the local government area without a bank. And that's quite, it's 8,000, if I'm remembering right, it's an 8,000 square kilometre local government area in Australia and it has no bank at all. And that's extraordinary. It's the only one in Australia, but, but Western Australia, sorry, South Australia, Lisa, is a banking desert. It's lost um, more banks than any other state proportionally, mm. right, the, as, a, as a percentage of total banks. Um, and this is all of the work from Dale Webster, from the regional who's documented all this. If you, go back to, if you go back to Dale's website, the regional, look at her original articles where she lays out the scale of bank closures. She, she takes as a starting point 1975. Um, that was the high watermark of banks in Australia. And since 1975, I don't know the exact figure, but it's, it's, it's something like 80% of South Australia's banks have closed, 80%. So um, we wrote a press release on Monday, putting out the fact that the hearing was going to be on and people needed to get there, uh, etc. And we told some of this information about South Australia. Um, hmm. Sky News stole it. Now, we're going to play a clip in a minute. You'll see Sky News did a news story yesterday. They just read our press release verbatim without attributing it to us, hmm. right? I mean, I don't mind amusing our material, but... It's a courtesy of the media. You're supposed to attribute your material, right? They didn't write it. I wrote it, <laughs> Sky News. But anyway, um, because the points of though were dramatic. This is what South Australia is like. So yeah, there's a whole, there's one whole shire with no banks whatsoever. Um, Narracourt was quite fired up. The Narracourt a Narracourt councillor had called me the day before to say they're going to support the postal bank mm. motion because of how badly serviced they are by the banks. And they sent a pretty fired up delegation. 
one of their one of their delegates delegates um, when he took the stand with some other people from Narracourt, uh, one of them represented a local car dealership, etc. And they were they were telling stories about how you know um, people still pay cash for cars, mm-hmm. like they'll buy you know especially things like a used car, you know twenty someone someone gives them twenty five thousand dollars in cash to buy a car. And then they have to deal with that cash, yeah. right? But that's the, way the way, that's the way that person wanted to transact. They have to deal with it. And there used to be a bank, you could put the cash in. Now they can't. They try and feed this cash into the ATM because that's what they're told by the bank to do. And then they reach the ATM's limit, right? And they can't. And the banks don't care. Oh, we'll come back to that in a minute. The Cooper PD representative is very important because Cooper PD is the poster boy of this problem, right? In fact, for us, if people wonder how the Citizens Party got involved in this. Apart from our work with Dale Webster, and we were reporting Dale's material, etc., because we knew this was an important issue, and we were post promoting the Postal Bank Alternative. We had put out an email to every councillor in Australia mm. last, I think, September 2022. We put out an email to every councillor in Australia asking them to endorse the Postal Bank campaign, and the first people to respond were, were the Cooper PD Council. Mm. The administrator and the, it's, it's a council in administration, so the administrator and the CEO contacted us. They passed a motion endorsing the Postal Bank campaign. They were fired up. Why? Because they'd just been informed by Westpac that they were going to lose their bank. And it's the only bank in town, and they're 540 kilometres from the next bank in Port Augusta. And they knew this would be disastrous. Um, so unfortunately, the committee had thought about going out to put Cooper Pete. And I was telling them, you should, you should, you know. We should go to the effort of, of experiencing what the people of Cuba PD have to experience, right? Mm-hmm. If they have to drive 540 kilometres to the next bank, the least we can do is go out there. Logistically, it didn't work out, but the new administrator um, of the council was able to come to the hearing yesterday. His name's Jeff Sheridan, and he gave stark testimony about this, including the fact that um, the locals have been buying safes. Right, we've talked. This was reported in the news, but he confirmed it. The locals are buying safes because they can't exist without cash. Mm. There's no alternative to cash in Cooper PD, none. So they're buying safes, and then he told the story about um, how the new CEO, so the, the original administrator and CEO that I started talking to, they've moved on. So there's a new administrator and CEO. The new CEO, who's sort of a temporary one, he needed to. He's the CEO, so he has a card, a credit card, representing the CEO of the council, right? But he has to change, he has to get his ID on it, etc. And when Westpac closed, Elisa, they said, you can bank at the post office. Mm. Now, one of the curiosities of this bank at the post office garbage is that for some reason, the banks impose restrictions on what you can do at the post office. Not mm. the post office. Mm. The post office would provide you virtually every service a bank provides you if they were allowed to, Right. Probably except, you know, except approving loans or something yeah. like that. But pretty much everything else they would provide if they're allowed to. The banks won't let them. And this stuff about IDs and checking your signatures on cards and whatever is particularly ridiculous because the most important ID you will ever have, apart from the one you're born with, your birth certificate, and don't come at me about admiralty law. <laughs> anyway, apart from your birth certificate, the most important ID you'll ever have is your passport. And where do you go to get your passport? <laughs> Who establishes your ID there? Mm. The post office. If they can do the passport, why can't they do this for the banks? The banks restrict it. So this guy has to go to Port Augusta just to get make sure his card can work. 
So what does he do? Because he's no dummy. Country people aren't stupid. He thinks, well, I've got to go to Adelaide anyway. So I'll drop into the bank at Port Augusta while I'm doing that. Kill two birds, one stone. So he does. He, t- he drives the 540 kilometres to Port Augusta, turns up at the bank and says, I need to confirm my ID so I can use this card as the new CEO of the Cuba PD Council. And they said, oh, sorry, you need to talk to the manager. He does that. Oh, well, can I talk to the manager? Um, sorry, the manager's busy. Can you come back tomorrow? This is, this is the Westpac at, at Port Augusta, mm. right? Just no ability to... Anyway, you can get mad at that staffer who said mm. that. You should really get mad at the fact that Westpac puts, makes people go to the post office and puts restrictions on it. This is the yeah. kind of testimony. Now, um, uh, the, the, the useful thing about the hearing yesterday, Elisa, is that the, all this testimony went first. The bank... Westpac came and testified at the end. Mm-hmm. And so the senators heard all this testimony in advance. Mm. And that's why we're saying senators tear strips off privileged bankers because they absolutely fired up. And, and it's a little bit... Think of... Um, if you've seen, a, if you've seen a, uh, a werewolf horror movie, it start, what these hearings start to become like is that when the bank sits down at the table, it's like, the, it's like suddenly there's a full moon... And these senators, you can see them, the, the, the hair on the back of their neck rising up. They start growing fangs. You can see the claws coming out. I, I kid, kid, kid it, you not. And it doesn't matter who they are either because there was a kind of a different cast of characters yeah, at this event was. than the usual ones that have had the, the knives out. These are humdrum liberals, these people. So, like, they're, they're just establishment liberals, most of them. Now, Senator Jared Rennie is, has been at every hearing. He's the driving force behind this inquiry. Everyone knows, like our regular viewers will know what he's like, right? He doesn't hold back. He goes for these banks mm. all the time. He's an unusual liberal. The Liberal Party founded, sorry, the banks, Elisa, founded the Liberal Party. They've always been loyal to the banks. Remember when there was a call for a royal commission in 2017? John Howard intervened to stop it. The old John Howard, he, go, he called it rank socialism. That's a quote from John Howard, the, the second longest serving Liberal Prime Minister. It's rank socialism to actually subject the banks to any kind of scrutiny. Mm. They are owned lock, stock and barrel by the banks. They, the banks own them and they always have. The problem in Australia is not really the fact that the banks own the Liberal Party. It's the fact that the Labor Party used to fight the banks mm. until they sold out to them in the 80s and they still have. But anyway, that's the, that's the Liberal Party. But the individuals had their own personalities, etc., right? And this was a new cast of characters. But because they had to sit there all day and listen to these stories, when the Westpac people took the stand and the guy who led the, their, their testimony for Westpac is the same guy who was at the sale hearing in March 2023 and was at what, some of the Canberra hearings. His name is Ross Miller. He just sat there and blithely said, well... We're doing everything all right by these communities. We're providing all the services we can. In fact, we're expanding services for these communities. And the senators couldn't believe what they were hearing. And they got mad mm. and they showed it. And so Jared Rennick went after them first. And then Senator um, Colbeck, who was at the, the sale hearing, he said he opened up, he was fired up. He goes to this guy, Ross Miller, he said, you're sounding exactly like you sounded in sale a year ago, mm. yet we've had all this proof 
that there is a problem. We wouldn't have an inquiry if there wasn't a problem. You're sitting there pretending there's no problem. And then Senator David Fawcett, another Liberal from South Australia, was particularly good because he said to these senators, he said, he said to these bankers, sorry, he said, did you, when we call professional people to these hearings, we expect them to read the submissions that people have put to these inquiries. Have you read the submissions? And, he, and the answer was, oh, well, not all 600 of them. We've, we've read a lot of them. Did you listen to the testimony today? And the answer to that was, well, we were driving down from Adelaide and so we heard as much as we could. It, it was a bit patchy in some places. Now, I was in the back saying, ask them if it's patchy in some places, how are people in those places supposed to do digital banking? Mm. Anyway, so, um, and then he just, it was like he, he, he got a rope, Senator Fawcett got a rope, tied it to a noose, put it around their neck and let them choke themselves. Because he just kept, he wouldn't back off. He kept asking these more and more specific and incisive questions to these bankers. And he was going for their jugular because, mm. as he said later, he said he had been appalled yeah. at listening to the to the testimony they were prepared to give. And that, so there's a, we want to play a mm. bit of testimony. But well, can I say because, one thing before yeah, you introduce it? Yeah. There's a process here that is because we have, and we've been involved in it, of course, what we're doing is by, by giving the public, here's a real problem to be addressed, the banking closures problem. It relates to a bigger problem, which is the power of banks in the system, which is way too power, which are way too powerful. That's the bigger problem. Mm. That's why we're involved, right? We're going after the power of banks. This bank, this this arrogance on branch closures shows you they've got way too much power. The system, the political system, has ignored it up until now. So we get an inquiry where they're forced to look at it, right? And by making these senators engage with the public in these hearings. It makes the senators better than they were, mm-hmm. right? It forces them to take to, to go up a step because they're not all. Some senators are ideologically pretty bad, but there's a small minority of the hardcore. Most of them are just normal people. They're distracted by a million things. We're forcing them to engage, and this has become a, a more and more powerful inquiry as it's gone on, mm. right? Yeah. So the clip we want to show is. Um an interview that this is the Sky News coverage you were referring to, where they not only read our media release, but they followed up one of the people we had quoted yep. in that me- uh, media release, which is um, Professor Andy um, Schmulo from the University of Wollongong. But he was, so he testified, he was one of the witnesses yep. that spoke that these senators and the committee also got to listen to. And we want to play the whole interview that Sky did with him because his testimony on this subject is very powerful. Well, what you're going to hear in the interview is pretty much what he was able to elaborate on his testimony because it's based on his mm. submission. He is an expert in international regulation. He's, he's actually South African Australian dual national. Um, so he knows about these other jurisdictions really well. He actually, he actually um, gave uh, credit to the University of Wollongong. They must have allowed him to use their resources to do some real good research into this subject as he was making to, mm. to make a submission to the inquiry. And he's sort of come along late in the here in the inquiry process, but he's made a big splash straight away. And you'll see the you'll see the quality of it in this interview. So I'd been I'd seen Sky News reading our press release without giving us any credit. And then they said and they you know they do the same news every hour, right? So then they the next hour they're gonna do it again. But this time, so I was I was happy but unhappy they weren't crediting us but then what they did we had quoted Andy Schmulo's um, submission 
in our press release. Sky did the right thing and based on the reference in our press release, contacted him to do this interview. So mm. watch Andy Schmulo, Professor Andy Schmulo, lay out why the banks must be re-regulated. And this is, where the, why, this is why we call them privileged bankers. He will give you the chapter and verse of their actual privilege and no one has made it clearer than him. Have a look. A Senate inquiry into regional bank closures will take place in South Australia today. The hearing comes after the state has become a banking desert. Some towns have been completely debanked. Others have only one bank to serve hundreds of kilometres. In Coober Westpac closed the only bank in town after a commitment to pause closures. The nearest bank is now 540 kilometres away. Westpac senior officers are expected to attend the hearing alongside council members. Well, joining me live is Dr Andy Schmulo, Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of Wollongong. Thank you so much for joining us. The public hearing takes place, as you know today, on the bank closures in regional Australia. You are attending. What are you submitting? So I thought I was invited to submit a report to uh, to this inquiry, and there are a couple of things that I'd, I'd like to tease out when I provide my testimony today. And the first is what I refer to as a, a set of mutual and reciprocal obligations. And if I can just give you a little bit of background. The banking industry is unlike any other industry in that it operates under what's called systemic risk. Now, that's a fancy way of saying it has a, a capacity or a, or a tendency towards financial crises. So in other industries, if Woolworths goes bankrupt, it won't cause Coles to go bankrupt. If Telstra goes bankrupt, it won't affect Optus. But if ANZ goes bankrupt, it'll take down every other bank with it. So the taxpayer steps in, the community steps in, and, it unders- and they underwrite uh, all of bank liabilities and all of bank debts, and they guarantee bank deposits to ensure that we don't have a financial crisis. And that's a pretty significant benefit. I'm sure that there are a lot of small business owners and farmers who would love to be in a position where they would never face bankruptcy because the taxpayer will step in. So that's the first very significant benefit that we provide to our banking industry. And then there's a knock-on effect to that. So banks borrow money from other banks, and when they do so, they pay interest. And the interest that they are charged depends on the likelihood that they'll default. Well, there is no likelihood that they'll default because the taxpayer underscores and underwrites their liabilities. So... The Reserve Bank has estimated that our banking industry saves about $3.7 billion a year in funding costs. That's $74 billion over 20 years. I'll come back to why I say 20 years in a moment. But those very significant benefits that we provide to the banking industry, we enable it to operate by providing a taxpayer-funded guarantee, and we provide them with a $74 billion windfall over 20 years. I think that creates mutual and reciprocal obligations. The community has supported the banking industry, and I think that the banking industry should return the favour and support the community, and the baseline level of support that they should provide, at the very minimum, is to provide branches. Now, I had a look at, in conducting research for this uh, submission that I made to this inquiry, I had a look at the last time the Senate conducted an inquiry into bank branch closures, which was 20 years ago in 2004. And when they conducted that inquiry 20 years ago, all of the major banks, ANZ, CBA, NAB, Westpac, made solemn, irrevocable promises on the record that they wouldn't shut any more branches. And all they've done for the last 20 years while sucking down a $74 billion taxpayer-funded subsidy is shut branches. And I think that the time has come to say, we've had enough. 
uh, you haven't come to this debate, you, the banking industry, you haven't come to this debate with clean hands, you haven't come to this debate uh, in good faith, you are not bona fide participants in this in this inquiry, and so the time has come to impose regulations on you as to whether you can shut branches or not. We have heard that around 800 branches have closed since 2017. That seems to be a lot of banks. Now, what are we learning from overseas? So in, in, in conducting this research for the submission that I made, I had a look at two other jurisdictions. I had a look at the United Kingdom and South Africa. And in both of those jurisdictions, there's a regulatory framework that prevents banks from shutting branches unless they can show the regulator that the customers who will be affected by those branch closures will be catered for to the same level and in the same way elsewhere without being caused undue inconvenience. So they can't just turn around to the regulator and say, well, we're shutting a branch, it doesn't matter, they can go online. No, 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 no. In order to be given permission to shut a branch, they need to demonstrate that the customers who are being affected will be provided with a branch service that is equally convenient elsewhere. In South Africa, they, uh, all the major banks convert shipping containers uh, and they put them on the back of semis they convert them into full-service branches and they drive them into the most remote parts of the country, parts of the country that have never had branches, that don't have electricity or running water, because their response is, well, we are under a legal obligation to provide banking services to the community, so we can't establish a brick-and-mortar branch in the very most remote parts of the country, but we will truck in a full-service branch and we will give customers in those very remote areas access to full-service banking at least once a week. It's just extraordinary. If they can do that in South Africa, South Africa, which is rapidly sliding into, into the status of a banana republic, I'll say that as a South African, dual South African national myself, if South Africa can do that, why on earth can't Australia do that? So what would you say is going to happen in this inquiry today. I mean, you have explained it very clearly. And when we look at the banks, they are obviously, you know, wanting to shut down for obvious reasons. Is there other reasons that we don't know why they would be wanting to shut down? There's only one reason. It's cost effective. Brick and mortar branches is an overhead and uh, it, it crimps their profitability, despite the fact that depending on the time period you use, our banks are the most or second most profitable banking industry in the world by ROE, our return on equity. That's not enough, apparently. And uh, what our banks are trying to do is just boot everybody out of brick-and-mortar branches and make them bank online. Now, I haven't been into a bank branch probably, I think, in about eight years, so it doesn't matter to me. But there are, there are a lot of people for whom it's just not feasible. They might be elderly or they might have a disability, uh, they might have a literacy issue, and they need a bank branch. And I think that inconvenient as that may be for our banking industry, set against that is a $74 billion windfall that they've enjoyed for the last 20 years. And so, you know, inconvenient, well, tough luck. Now, how will it go today? I very much hope that the committee will uh, take my recommendation to establish a working group to extract a regulatory framework from another jurisdiction so that we can implement it in Australia and prevent banks, you know, under a regulatory framework, prevent them from simply, willy-nilly, shutting banks. Good luck today. We will look forward to hearing more. Dr Andy Schmulo, thank you very much. Pleasure.
And I really liked the idea that you had, which apparently you raised last week, about making a bank poster to replace the posters on the bank in the bank windows that say, oh, you know, we have to go, go reduce to the, our hours or go yeah. to the post office where we could actually yeah, put one up. You can still bank with us at the post office. Yeah, so we should, you know, get people to do up their own and replace these where we say, you know, oh, you know, we're... We're getting $74 billion subsidies from you to provide you a service, but we'll make you go to the post office anyway. Where We're we going to cl- we can sponge off the taxpayer who owns the post office. And don't and not pay the post office service. enough. Yeah, yeah. So we, we will do that. Um, I took a, we stopped in the town of Edenhope on the way, and I, I went to the National Australia Bank, and I took a photo of that poster. In fact, I'll give it to the producer. You can put it up, mm. the photo. I took a photo of the poster. Mm. We're going to do a dummy version of this poster for the different banks, and um, we'll, we'll tell you when they're completed. We'll have to design it a bit. And then you guys can call in and get these posters and go and put them on those banks, mm. right? So that it makes it clear that they just intend to, they want, they want their privilege as Andy Schmulo laid it out and they oh. do not want reciprocal responsibility. Absolutely maddening. Um, so, yeah, do whatever you can. Have some fun on that front with it. Um, we may as well stick it to these guys in any way that we can. Now, next topic, which is, as I said, related. Central bank dictatorship plot stumbles. And this um, is actually good indications that we're getting real traction in the fight to stop uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers and the government giving away the people's power to control banking in this country. Um, So we're going to talk about some of what came out of Senate Estimates hearings last Thursday, the 15th of February, Um, But just to say straight up front that we have indications that the the Liberal opposition, I mean, you know, the party in opposition is always a bit feistier than when they're in government and they suddenly can't do anything about anything. Um, But the Liberal opposition are showing indications that they might not let this go through the parliament. Yeah, so a a source uh, told me yesterday that uh, he fully expects the coalition to vote against the repeal of Section 11 of the RBA Act, and that's the section that gives the Treasurer veto power over the RBA, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we want to preserve. That's the part that says the democratic elected government has ultimate authority over the unelected RBA. That's mm-hmm. the principle. If you take that away, you create a banker's dictatorship because, as John Curtin said, unless the, in 1937, he said, unless the government of the day... Um, sorry, if the government of the day absolves itself from any responsibility for monetary policy, mm. it cannot govern except in a secondary degree, which means someone else is really in charge, mm-hmm. right? The elected government is secondary to this other power. That's what we're talking about. And now the Liberals, like I said, are own lock, stock and barrel by the bank. Don't kid, <laughs> yeah. you, don't kid you. However, they're in opposition and we've been targeting them on this since November. Mm. And there's um, ructions in the ranks that's been cons- uh, uh, expressed in the party room. Mm. And so, and there's a hearing today, actually, Elisa, it's just started, well, it's 10.30 as we're doing this, so it's just yes. started, right? And this is into the bill. The um, committee doing the if, inquiry. And if this yeah. is true, I'm, now I'm going to Canberra next week with uh, Glenn Isherwood, and our meetings are about this, right? And mm. we, will, we will confirm that this is true, and then if it's true, we know we've got... If the coalition votes no and the Greens vote no, then there's just a, um, a handful of uh, crossbenchers to lock in as well. I mean, when one nation will vote no. Um, we can actually 
the bill may go through anyway, the RBA reforms bill may go through because there's lots of parts to the bill, mm -hmm. but without this section in it, this may be amended out, right? And mm. so we, we have to consolidate that opposition. Mm. What you need to do is keep calling Liberals, but also um, go to the section, which uh, go to the list of our um, uh, senators that, we, that we've made, we'll have a link below, where you can get the contact details for the senators for your state. Call them, and especially the crossbenchers in your state. If you've got, if you're in Tasmania, call Jackie Lambie and, and Tammy Tyrrell, right? If you're in ACT, call David Pocock. You say that you've got to stop this. This um, mm. Jim Chalmers doing this. Yeah, shore up the lines uh, that will oppose it. And the hearings today will be most interesting because they will have uh, various submitters, people that put in submissions, uh, the RBA review panel itself, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Treasury Department, um, and various others. So it'll be actually quite interesting to see how the um, the lines shape up yeah. um, of argument because uh, when Michelle Bullock was in Senate estimates last week, she might have thought she was, you know, holding a pretty um, a safe line by saying she was ambivalent about agnostic. Section 11. Agnostic. Yeah, the word she used was agnostic. But um, I think her attitude of, oh, you know, I could take it or leave it, has really <laughs> is going to start to backfire on her and the whole... Um, the whole proposal to take out this legislation because... Well, you're right, because it's not good enough, Michelle. We're talking about we're talking about democracy. Well, that's right. And the way that this Section 11 has been described in the statements on the conduct of monetary policy since their inception in 1996 all the way mm. through to 2013, and that statement is whenever there's a new government comes in, the Treasurer and the head of the Reserve Bank sit down and they say, well, this is our intention when it comes to monetary policy. And, you know, obviously it talks about the independence of the bank and things like that. But at the same time, it up until 2013 when it was taken out, it also stressed that Section 11 power. And what it said about it is safeguards like this ensure that monetary policy is subject to the checks and balances inherent and necessary in a democratic system. Yep. So what, that's not important anymore? And just because it hasn't been used? I mean, safeguards are not there just because they've been used. They're there she's in ag case. She's agnostic on that, Lisa. She is agnostic on that. Doesn't so, matter. So this is what she said, if people haven't heard it. Uh, so Senator Green Senator Nick McKim asked her about what she thought about the removal of Section 11 last week. And she said the power... She said the power's never been used anyway, so that was one of her main defences. But that the review panel recommended it because, quote, it was somewhat unusual internationally. But I think I'm reasonably agnostic. And then she went on to say, I would say from my perspective, since I've been engaged with the board, and I can't speak for the past, but as far as I've been engaged with the board, the board takes its decisions independently of government. In other words, we're independent anyway, mm. so that makes no difference yeah. if you remove it, which has been our point for a while now. <laughs> Can I say, and there's a, she's right that it's somewhat unusual internationally, mm. thanks to John Curtin and Ben Chifley. Exactly. Thanks to the old Labor Party. Yep. They fought for Australians to have a protection that other jurisdictions didn't have, mm -hmm. right? Those are the greatest prime ministers in our history. Mm. You know, you don't just throw away this protection willy-nilly. Now, uh, she was then asked by Senator, LNP Senator Jared Rennick 
about the removal of Section 36 of the Banking Act, which gives the Reserve Bank the power to direct the commercial lending of banks and where it should yeah. go to in different sectors of the economy. Again, Bullock said, look, it's not used anyway. And she said, we don't operate like that anymore. The financial system is deregulated. And look where it's got it. <laughs> now, there are still regulations on the books of on the banks, obviously, because they're very important. Mm. But we don't use those powers. We will never use those powers. <laughs> and I see no reason why they should remain. You know, they've never been used, so just take them out. Yeah. Even though it's a safeguard, it's there in case it needs to be used. Yeah, we've got this great... We've got this great graph um, uh, that was prepared by originally by a former APRA principal researcher, Dr. Wilson Sy, um, from Investment Analytics, that shows the how uh, the amount of bank lending for for business in around 1990 was about 70 percent, and for housing, 30 percent, mm. and then the two just sw- swapped over, right? Um, and the crossover was around the year 2000. But now it's bank lending is nearly 70% for, for housing and 30% for business. And that is terrible. That is completely unhealthy. That's why we have the most expensive housing in the world. It's why we have a property bubble. The banks created this. And the Reserve Bank should have been using these powers all along to say to the banks, stop lending so much for housing and, if, and, and, and not to deny first home buyers loans, mm. right? They, 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 they rigged it with investor loans. They should have been saying, stop making those sort of loans, make loans to the business community, the small business community in Australia, who need the credit, right, for the sake of our, for their businesses and for our economy. That's the power the Reserve Bank had all along, and they haven't used it. And she's saying, well, we would never use this. Well, um, what are you good for then, Michelle mm. Bullock? Get out of there. And Jim Chalmers, don't give her unlimited power, right, by, you, you know, absolving yourself of your, your uh, veto. Now... Jim Chalmers has also done himself a disservice because he had to have a little brag about his role managing the GFC and how wonderfully Australia sailed so smoothly through the global financial crisis. So, was, we, 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 had, we had uninterrupted economic growth. That's right. And we had the, most, the soundest banks in the world. But then he, he said, because uh, his book was called Glory Days, how a world-beating nation got so down on itself, because he's hilarious because he says, oh, you know, we avoided the economic and social devastation inflicted on so many other countries, but yet, um, yet people were still deeply disgruntled and unhappy. Um, <laughs> What's you wrong know, with them? We had rising living standards and a strong budget position, but most Aussies still considered our economy weak and at risk. Right, because you know everything they did, uh, and the Rudd government, Wayne Swan, and of course Jim Chalmers was the principal advisor and chief of staff for Wayne Wayne Swan, and they participated. And Rudd prides himself in being a leader of the pack to get the response to the global financial crash to be a globally coordinated one, and he pushed for the G20, and others did too, but he certainly had a role in it to expand the G20 from being more than just a gathering of finance ministers or treasurers and central bank governors, so that the first meeting convened after the GFC in November 2008 included George W. Bush, so it included presidents and leaders Mm. and heads of state. And so they pushed Rudd and Swan and Chalmers um, to have what we called the great global collusion of central banks to pump money in to the financial sector. So all of what he said about, oh, you know, we survived the crash so wonderfully, et cetera, et cetera, we fixed the balance sheet, it was all 
the, all of that whole operation, that whole bailout, as we know, has made the problem worse because it just yeah. pumped money into the banks, into investments, into speculation, um, and the real ordinary people did not benefit that, or if they did temporarily, they certainly didn't after too long. Um, so, yeah, basically this transformation of the G20 was designed to block or head off a real reform of the system, which was actually being pushed at the time by countries around the BRICS, which we see today is actually beginning to roll out a new fair and just financial architecture. So back then they were on the job and other groupings like the G77, which is about 130-odd developing countries. And thanks to WikiLeaks, again, thanks Julian Assange, mm. you know, it's not just service in helping us stop war, but in... in stopping this financial takeover, um, a, a confidential summary of a 27th April 2009 meeting between the US and U UK representatives to the United Nations, this memo, these leaders were literally saying how we have to uh, use the, the G20 instead of the United Nations because the United Nations is likely to produce resolutions that will actually demand... Um, you know, more say going to the developing countries. And these are some quotes that both of the US and UK leaders agreed to work with other nations to, quote, monitor preparatory meetings, head off the introduction of activist policy language into the outcome document, split off the more moderate G77 countries from the ones that were supporting real reform of the financial system and push the G20 as the proper venue for discussing reform. And it was confirmed when the UN met uh, the following month because the UN uh, communique in June 2009 called for fair, inclusive and sustainable um, reformation of global yeah. markets, renewed multilateralism, in other words, giving other countries a say in how we reorganise the financial markets and reforming the IMF and World Bank. Um, but, yeah, basically, Swan and... Uh, Chalmers were in the middle of the, the US, UK, you know, our dangerous allies pushing for the concentration of power into the hands of a small number of countries that dominated and the I system help, at the time. At least I can't help be suspicious that that whole um, mythology that Kevin Rudd, you know, mm. is responsible for the G20 um, is to cover the fact that what the US and UK were determined to do and did is rig the system to make sure mm. there wasn't proper reform. Yeah. And so here's, here, you, you know, you've got this thing where the US goes around talking about the rules-based order and all the other countries. The countries of the world that are sharp to this have been saying, hang on, we've had the United Nations since 1944. It's got a charter. We've all agreed to that charter. Every member, most countries in the world are a member of the United Nations. You have to agree to that charter first. It enshrines international law. There's a Declaration of Human Rights. That's enshrined. That's all agreed to. That is international law. Mm -hmm. You guys have come along and you've invented this new system to make sure you stay on top. And our argument all along, Elisa, has been when we talk about America's interests or Britain's interests, it's never the interest of the American and British people. Mm -hmm. they, they suffer the most from this system. They have a, what the American and British system, the Anglo-American system, and Australia is part of it. We enshrine the power of this private elite above the government. Mm -hmm. That's what we actually do. It's, it's untouchable. And... They did not want... It should have all come crashing down at the time of the GFC. All of it. Yes. And they had to save it. And, and so they create this mythology that, um, you know, oh, you know, 
Kevin Rudd's a hero, etc. We've got the G20. No, this was a way of avoiding having a proper accounting of, of the process. Yeah. And all I did was push the can down the road to now. Well, that's right. Well, the other thing that they did, apart from coordinating this collusion to bail out the banks, is they introduced bail-in. Yes. So these were the two travesties that came out of the G20 process because the G20 in 2009 created the Financial Stability Board housed at the Bank for International Settlements. But see, Rudd had been talking as soon as he came into office about like indicating in the direction of independence for the Reserve Bank. In fact, he called it a new era of independence for the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh-huh. That's what he was pushing for soon after he was elected. His ads, his, his, his television ads in the 2007 campaign, we commented on at the time, was, I am an economic conservative. Mm. I believe in the independence of the Reserve oh, Bank. Okay, and we yeah. were saying, we made a big deal about the fact mm. that 2007... The Labor leader was saying the opposite of what the Labor leader in 1937, John oh, Curtin, yeah. had said. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that he did is he introduced um, the financial claims scheme. This was actually mid-2008. So before the financial crash, he introduced a financial claims scheme because it was recommended by the Global Financial Stability Forum. Yep. This is what Jim Chalmers said in his book, the Global Financial Stability Forum was the precursor, or the predecessor of the Financial Stability Board yeah. that was set up and which now monitors countries for their compliance with the bail-in regime. So what Chalmers is doing now is the final element in the process of making sure that not just bail-in but the entire financial control is in place and governments can't interfere with it yeah in the next coming financial crisis, which, by the way, and you can read more about all these stories in the Australian Alert Service, there's quite an extensive coverage of what I've just gone through with Chalmers book and G20. But the other article in here is headlined, Will US Debt Bubble Crash the Global Dollar? And this is a very serious thing showing that uh, a new crash is on the cards. It will be much worse than the last one. And it just heralds some of the new tremors in the U.S. regional banking situation where New York City Community Bank Corp uh, has just announced $550 million in expected loan losses, had a 70% share collapse, stock downgraded to junk. This bank was a survivor of last year's regional banking collapse and even bought up part of Signature Bank. But U.S. regional banks hold nearly $3 trillion in commercial real estate loans, and this bank was one of them that's loaded up with it, um, $1.2 trillion of it is due this year. It has to be paid out or rolled over. And there's 1,900 of those US, because there's a lot of US banks, unlike Australia, 1,900 mid-sized US banks have commercial real estate loan portfolios that are worth more than 300% of their equity. Um, but see, the US is carrying a debt of over $34 trillion. It's paying $2 billion a day in interest alone at these high rates. The only way that is sustained is because countries all over the world buy U.S. treasuries. They, yep. They're happy to take on U.S. debt because the U.S. is the world's reserve currency. If that ends because countries, more and more countries join the BRICS club that are saying we're going to trade in our own currencies because the U.S. is doing X, Y, Z, they'll you know cut off our... Um, like in the case of Russia or Venezuela, they'll just steal our reserves altogether because they're in U.S. dollars or, you know, sanction us for X, Y, Z. You know, countries have had enough of it. And and symbolically, Elisa, this is one of the reasons, and probably it's probably as big a reason as any, that 
there's such a freak out over the Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin because towards the end of that interview, here the Americans and the British have thrown everything at Putin in terms of their sanctions and, and to try and bankrupt Russia. They've bankrupted themselves and Russia is, <laughs> has got stronger yeah. economically. And Putin said so. And he said, you've destroyed your own dollar, mm. right? And he, he declared it in that thing. And they're trying to say, oh, Hillary Clinton says, oh, Putin lies all the time. You're the ones whose dollar's tanking, right? Yeah. Um, and and this has all these consequences. And the bottom line is the US can't sustain that debt that it has. No. It can't keep churning it out if it's not the world reserve currency with nations buying in. So that there's a crunch point coming one way or another sooner or later. One of the things that the US is doing really hysterically at the moment is trying to beat up this thing about a, an economic crisis in China. Or look at China, look at China, look at China. And, and Putin addressed that as well, of course. You know, China is doing well economically. But um, the, the bigger issue is countries like China... You don't have a situation there where the central bank has more authority than the government. Mm -hmm. what, that's, they don't have, they don't, the bankers aren't, and the private corporations don't dictate in China. There's plenty of big banks and private, and private corporations, but they're not in charge. And you've seen that in cases where they've got too big and the government clips their wings straight away, mm. right? Mm. We have a situation, we think, we, we've been conned into calling this democracy and freedom. Mm -hmm. Freedom for the biggest corporations to plunder yep. the economy Open all the time, for them. right? Yep. And they're the ultimate one is, is Chalmers, who's part of this plot from the beginning to create this dictatorship and take real economic decision-making out of the hands of government. He's been, the, the final step is this bill mm -hmm. to remove Section 11. And if, if our source is correct um, and is reflecting something that's going on in the mm. parliament, this could blow up in their face next week. Yeah. All right. So, so what's this Hammer space? your member of parliament about this issue, particularly ahead of Robbie yep. and Glenn heading up to Canberra next week because they will meet with us if they're yep. getting a lot of heat on this issue. Because exactly. we have to make sure Australia has control of banking as this new crash emerges. Because I want to live in a democracy. I don't, I'm not agnostic about it. <laughs> no, me either. <laughs> Even though Bullock is per this headline. <laughs> so contact us for more information. You can get a copy of this alert. You can subscribe to it. Get it every week. Be ahead of the curve. Um, and, yeah, that's about it for this week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.